this. Let's let's go a little deeper there on that historical aspect. You've also written extensively about white evangelicals. Of course, this movement has made it its mission, as you were just alluding to, for the last 50 years to see Roe overturned. I wonder if you'll walk us through the original strategy behind this groundswell from, from white evangelicals. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Anthea Butler. She is a Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Butler has made appearances on BBC, MSNBC, CNN, The History Channel, and PBS. She's also contributed to the New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, NBC, and The Guardian. She's the author of several books, including The Rise of a New Religious Right and White Evangelical Racism. Dr. Butler, it's an honor to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. You know, I was just reading like all the contributions and appearances you made. Like, how do you how do you keep it up? Barely. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I think you know, part of it is is how I absorb news. Maybe, you know, as a kid, my parents always let me watch the nightly news and everything else, and so I've been an avid newspaper reader, avid reader, all of that stuff. So for me. It's just I like a stream of information a lot better, and then I can kind of put things together in that kind of way. When we last had you on the podcast, it was spring of 2021. 
I asked you what you were looking forward to most now that the vaccine had been distributed and travel had become safer. And you said, I'm going to go see my parents and give them a big hug. So how did that reunion go? It was great. Um, I have seen my parents several times since that first time, which has been really great. Actually going to be seeing my parents again real soon. And I think that, you know, for all of us, what's been great is to be able to see people in person. I, I feel like the big one of the biggest things in the pandemic that happened was that we lost that sense of community in some ways. We had to make community through Zoom and, and other kinds of means, right? But nothing is more important than seeing somebody, being able to give somebody a hug, especially your loved ones. And so I think about that and I think about all the people who lost loved ones during this pandemic and this ongoing pandemic. And I just think how hard it must be for them if they don't get to be with somebody that they really care about and love. So behind the curtain for our, our podcast audience, I do uh, the interviews on a, the Zoom platform, but we don't do video, it's just audio kind of thing. And I remember asking you that question thinking, she's gonna give a fun answer. Like she's looking forward to going to Fiji, Hawaii mm -hmm. or something like that. And then you said your parents, and I thank goodness that the video wasn't on because I just started weeping. Thinking of oh, it, like, I know. I would just love the pure, just honest response to that. And the heart of where most of us were at that point in the pandemic of not being able to see um, people that we love. Um, you you have a tremendous platform on, on Twitter, um, and I noticed that you've been tweeting a lot recently about the decision of the Supreme Court uh, around Roe v. Wade. Um, as a as a Catholic, do you feel like there's an unfair assumption from others as to Catholics only see this issue in one particular way? Yes, I do. Um, I think that it's really hard for people to understand that. Catholic is small C and not big C, right? And so it's very difficult at times for people to imagine that there might be a pro-choice Catholic or a Catholic that might say, I personally wouldn't get an abortion, but I don't want to step on the, infringe on the rights of others to have one, right? And so a lot of that has to do with Catholic theology and how you think about your conscience, your con let your conscience guide you, let your conscience and God tell you what you need to, you know, what you need to think about a particular subject. And so for me, I think one of the things that was really important when this decision came down is that people sort of pointed to the court and said, oh, look at these, all these Catholic judges, and, you know, they're the ones that are gonna make this decision. When in fact, there's been this long history about how Catholics and evangelicals and other like-minded people came together to make Roe fall. And at the same time, there are a lot of people on the other side, liberal Protestants, liberal Catholics, you know, middle, middle of the road Catholics, who thought that, you know, this should be allowed for women. Women should have bodily autonomy. So I think, you know, when we think in these, you know, black, white binaries, we don't really see the myriad of different kinds of perceptions that people have about abortion and why. And this whole history about abortion, there's a whole another kind of history you have to think about that, you know, it's not as though people didn't have abortions before Roe became law, right? That was happening. I can think about my own mother who lost a friend, a good school friend, because she had an illegal abortion in the 1950s. And you know, as much most mothers do, they tell you these stories to sort of remind you to say this is this is a bad thing, right? So I think you know one of the things that I'm hopeful in this iteration of where we are right now is that these states begin to understand that it's not just about women who want to go get an abortion. 
because they think, you know, I just don't want to have this baby. But we're talking about young girls who may have been raped, um, incest, abuse, all kinds of things. Or you have medical problems. That means that it's, you know, for the life of the mother. It just doesn't seem to be, for a lot of people, any space to really think about all the different ways in which this particular thing can happen that is abortion. Fascinating about the the Catholic angle of it, you know, is for for you know people in particular is that you know, keep in mind you can see the disparity right now. So for example, you have several uh, Catholic justices, mm-hmm. you know, that are on the court, but then you have Joe Biden, and yes. you have these you know diverging perspectives uh, around this issue. Uh, Roe raises some uh, diversity of theological perspectives, um, not just about female rights and rights on life. Why do you think this is such a complex and diverse issue with often no space given for common ground? I, you know, honestly, if you want, as a historian, I'm going to tell you that this got very heavily politicized, you know, from the moral majority forward, let's say. And so that history has overshadowed anything you could talk about that was a nuanced way to think about abortion because it was a litmus test for for political candidates especially on the republican side it's a litmus test for whether or not you know in uh, during certain papacies like john paul ii for instance whether or not you were going to become you would be named a bishop or a cardinal right and so the way that this got politicized shaped the framework around everything what is interesting to me however is the surprise on everybody's face when this finally fell, when the first um, basically unadulterated and say almost same statement came out back in May that was leaked. Everybody was shocked. And I'm like, why are you shocked? This has been building for all these years. Would you, were you not paying attention to when the abortion clinics were shot up or when people were protesting or when you know pro-life people were doing all these things? And so I sort of think that there has been a sense, not just for regular people, but in the media, that this was just going to be law forever. And that it's only in the last few years, starting here in Texas, for instance, right, that people began to realize that maybe this could fall, but it still didn't hit the level of, you know, depending on who you're talking about, alarm or concern or happiness, you know, on the side of pro-life people, that this could really actually happen. Hmm. Yeah, you talk about the the range of, I remember watching the live coverage when the decision came down just at the Supreme Court and the people that were there you had a sea of, of diverse perspectives there that mm-hmm. were all intermingling together uh, in response to this let's let's go a little deeper there on that historical aspect you've also written extensively about white evangelicals of course this movement has made it its mission as you were just alluding to for the last 50 years to see Roe overturned I wonder if you'll walk us through the original strategy behind this groundswell from from white evangelicals. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this original strategy, I like to pin it in a couple of ways. One is, you know, Roe happens and people forget that, you know, Baptists didn't have a problem with this. They didn't have a problem with abortion beforehand. They, they understood it in a certain kind of way. But what happened to politicize it, I think, was both a cultural shift 
and a shift in terms of political power. So the cultural shift I think about a lot with Francis Schaeffer and his series, How Then Shall We Live? And people were watching this in the mid-1970s and realizing that he had a very famous film, and you can probably pick up this little cartoon, you can see it on YouTube, that he made about abortions and babies being thrown up in the air and everything, and that he saw this as a fundamentally bad thing, right? And so for lots of evangelicals, this became part of the cultural parlance of, of right to life. How do you think about life? This was always sort of there for Catholics too, but there was also tension within Catholic circles. But when you get people like basically what happens in 78, 79 with the creation of moral majority and a Catholic like Paul Weyrich, who is one of the architects of the religious right, right, who said we got to figure out ways to not like a lot of people vote, but we also have to find a way to galvanize people to vote. That becomes really important. Now, bracket that and put this also alongside the fact that you also had something else very big going on in the 70s, and that was the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University and some other schools that were considered to be uh, segregationists in, sort, in, in a certain kind of way, and they were able to keep that segregation because they were Christian schools. So these two things become a juggernaut, come, kind of become an intersection when Bob Jones gets its tax-exempt status revoked, when people begin to say, you know, we got to get the government out of our business and, and the schools and everything else, the government can't tell us what to do. And so if you pair that alongside the government saying that it's okay for you to get an abortion, you get these two things that are based, that are basically based upon the fact that you don't want government involved in your everyday life. And so while Jimmy Carter can say, yeah, it was fine, abortion, I'm okay with that, you know, Ronald Reagan giving you know the permission for evangelicals and others to be very vocal about all of this begins to change the political landscape and i think that's an important part of how to see this it's not just about whether this is about race and tax exempt status or abortion and whether you can have it or not it's about what you think government ought to be doing in your life uh, friend of, in front of the program, uh, Kristen Kobe's Dumay, and of course her, her great book, Jesus and John Wayne, just is, is uncovering the reality that for most white evangelicals, they're more likely to get their truth from, let's say, Fox News yeah. and, and, and all others than, than from the pulpit. But at the same time, that's not an, a, a new concept. You know, you go back a few years to the, the Clinton-Trump debates and you see this this visceral image that Trump is trying to create of, you know, saying, you know, all abortions are like, I vividly remember him saying this, of, you know, they're ripping a, a child out of a mother's womb at nearly full term. Why do you think, it, 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 maybe this is an assumption, that it seems to be a lack of willingness to educate themselves uh, around what, what, what are the issues around abortion, rather than, you know, for white evangelicals, just, just taking whatever is given to them from political figures or from these, you know, evangelical leaders? I, you know, I think it's something really simple, and I'm going to liken it to the classroom. It's a lot easier for students to remember a pithy statement than it is for them to go do their own research. <laughs> so, you know, this is this is where I stand on this. I think, you know, it's easier to say the visceral image of a baby being ripped out of the womb when Trump says that. It, it gets to violence. It gets to, you know, this kind of horrible thing, right? And so you remember that instead of remembering um, what, you know, Hillary Clinton's husband said back in the 90s, safe, legal, and rare. That's what he said about abortion, right? You know, and, and that in itself is a problematic statement, but that's another kind of thing altogether. But I think these, the, the way in which 
evangelicals have been sort of led to think about science, to think about technology, to think about all these different things, even though they use technology a lot, they begin to really just see this as, you know, a very, you know, black and white issue, as opposed to having nuance, as opposed to let me go do my research, let me find out what, you know, how is life viable? Because if you honestly do think, you know, theologically, that life begins at conception, you know, that something of a of someone's spirit is there when that, you know, that sperm hits the egg, then it's really hard to get people off of that kind of perception. And so every every creation of life to them, no matter how it starts, is sacred. And so you can't really back people out of this without having to really deconstruct a lot of what their belief system already is. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Do you feel like uh, for white evangelicals, they, there's a sense of a rival here? Uh, do you think they'll continue to settle into this one particular issue? Or what do you think they'll turn their attention to next? I think they'll turn their attention to gay marriage because that, that definitely was a big loss. Oberfell was a big loss for them. So I think that's going to be one. I think they will turn their attention to, as they already have, to how things are taught in schools. I think that we can see from the way that the court is going with not just this decision about Roe, but about the Vermont decision about, you know, what you could pay for in terms of private schools or the other decision that came down, and I'm sort of forgetting that this week, it's been a long week, but um, this other decision that came down that kind of really shows how they're putting religion back at the forefront. And so when we talk about separation of church and state, I think that this particular court, the majority on the court doesn't really see it that way. I think they see that this walking together as opposed to being separate. They definitely don't believe in the Danbury letter from Thomas Jefferson. 
You've written about why uh, abortion rights and fight against them are, are deeply rooted in misogyny and, and toxic patriarchy. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there and then we'll shift to something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's because, you know, people pay attention to scriptures. They pay attention to scripture that says the man is the head of the household, this Christ is the head of the church, right? And so when you've grown up hearing that, then you automatically assume that you are the head of the household who should be able to tell everybody what to do, right? And so this toxic kind of patriarchy thing has been around for a long time. I mean, I, I do this when I write about, you know, African-American churches. My first book was about, you know, how women had to sort of circumvent male leadership in the church to try to do some things that they felt like were very important because men did not want them to be, you know, in or, ordained, right? How do you get to have, you know, authority and do things? Well, you have to figure out a way to do that in these kind of gender-specific ways that allow you to have power. And so one way for Pentecostal women to have power back then was to have power of pr prophetic gifts and things of that nature because you couldn't usurp God. You see what I mean? So I think in this trajectory that we're on now, the way that this has happened is that there's been this nostalgia, the nostalgia to go back to the 1950s and Ozzy and Harriet and, you know, Billy Graham and all of this stuff. And I keep thinking, but you know that it wasn't really like that then, right? <laughs> you know that like yeah. black people were like cleaning people's houses and they couldn't get proper jobs and that you barely saw anybody from other countries because we didn't even have a good, you know, immigration policy until the 1960s where there were more people than ever that could come into the country. It's a nostalgia for a time that's never existed. Mm. And so nostalgia coupled with misogyny and patriarchy is a horrible stew of things that make people do things that maybe they wouldn't do. It's not progress. It's more like regression. And what I worry about personally right now is the regressive aspects of what is happening in America right now that I think do not put us, A, on par with the rest of the world, and B, don't reflect the, tr the true message of the gospel to begin with. You feel to a certain extent, <clears throat> you know, you look at the, the political movement. Again, I mean, not to over-politicize the conversation, but you look at the last, what, 20, 30 years of presidential elections, how mm -hmm. uh, any Republican candidate who's won the election has not even come close to winning the popular vote. Do you feel like some of this is a dying gasp effort from a worldview that is no longer in the majority? Um, that is, is, these are the last feign moments of control, uh, and we'll see true change in the next five to ten years. I don't or, know. Yeah. Yeah, say, <laughs> i got to be honest with yeah, you. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Because, it, you know, lots of times everybody has written about this as the last gasp. And I kind of think about it as a resurgence more than anything else. It's a resurgence of the, you know, people who are not that big in number, right? You know, relatively speaking, trying to assert control over a, a, a large populace. And they are uniquely positioned to do so because of the way that the electoral colleges and all this, I mean, we can talk about this, like Trump didn't really clearly win an election. He got the, he got the you know, he got the electoral college. George W. Bush, you know, run out right in 2004, but when we go back to 2000, did he really win? That was hanging chads, right? Mm -hmm. So when is the last time a Republican actually won an election? That's back maybe 1992 with George Herbert Walker Bush. So when, when you think about it like that, this has been very interesting. And I think one of the things that, you know, 
I would say moderates and, and liberals have not been able to deal with is that conservatives haven't put together in a massive structure to make sure that they don't lose power. Mm. And that has not happened for Democrats or, you know, even I would say, you know, people who don't see themselves as part of any party, right? You know, you have to understand that there's a structure behind all of this, and that structure is intent on keeping control in certain kinds of ways, you know, within the United States. And that has a lot of money behind it. Yeah, yeah. I, I say all that, and then I'm remembering our conversation before we start recording around voter suppression laws and, and all, all those yeah. kinds of things. Well, let's shift a little bit. Um, I'd love to talk about your um, your article, MSNBC, um, on R. Kelly's conviction for sex crimes. Should be a wake-up call for the, for the black church is the title. For those who did not see the news due to all the decisions coming down from yeah. the Supreme Court in the last few weeks, um, on Wednesday, R. Kelly was sentenced to 30 years in prison for nine convictions of federal sex trafficking case. Um, your article invited readers to consider why he was able to avoid um, censure by so many black communities, particularly mm -hmm. black religious groups. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper into the relationship R. Kelly had with the church and if and why some church leaders were complicit in his crimes. Yeah, I think this is really important because it, it, it hits on several things. One is R. Kelly has, you know, grew up, you know, black church boy, all of this stuff, right? So that's number one. And always credited God every time he won an award. You know, I believe I can fly became like a song that lots of gospel choirs sang. He put himself squarely within the church. But what he also did was put himself squarely in a black patriarchal tradition of black pastors. And so this kind of way in which you could say, oh, it's, you know, these women, these women are tempting me. They are doing these things or they want to be here and they're just fallen women or whatever. That is part of it. Now, I think the other part of it that's really sad and something that I think is, is very important right now for the black church is that the black church has its own problems with, you know, sexual behavior. And I mean sexual behavior in terms of predatory behavior, in terms of persecuting people who are, you know, sexually active or people who are gay, right? And so the way in which you could see R. Kelly is at a very masculine figure who, you know, exemplifies a, a black tradition in which we can see people who are prosperous and have given back to the community and all of this, but at the same time, not willing to criticize him for the very things that he is doing that are sinful, right? And so I think when we look at this relationship between this, you know, we have pastors like Eddie Long and others, you know, Eddie Long who's deceased, you know, embracing him and embracing R. Kelly, despite the fact that these rumors have been out for years and years and years and years and years. It's amazing to me that they were willing to just continue to take money and take that, you know, notoriety and not c confront him on the things that he was doing to black women. Small side note for our listeners, uh, we're not having a party where we're recording this. <laughs> we're recording this uh, the week we're at General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. I uh, actually had the opportunity to be in person. We've got some folks that are really enjoying themselves in the, in the background. Um, your article invited readers, um, you know, again, to consider, consider the church's involvement in, in these acts. So uh, CBF, in a mm -hmm. sense, was birthed out of the vitriol of the Southern Baptist movement over 30 years ago. The SBC is somewhat having their reckoning and their complicity in, in covering up 
and avoiding thousands of cases of sexual abuse and assault by the hands of Southern Baptist ministers, staff, and missionaries. We know that toxic masculinity, along with countless other reasons, are to blame for the cold and blind response to victims over the decades. But what can, what can we, uh, in, in, as church leaders and, and as a faith movement, learn from this disgusting legacy about the culture that breeds this behavior and, and response to victims? Well, I think, first of all, when people come to you and say something has happened to them, you've got to listen to them. And you have to turn them into the authorities. Whether you think that this happened or not, you need to let people sort this out. Because I think one of the things that I'm struck by is that, you know, especially in the Southern Baptist Report, how many people went to leadership and how that was just squelched at the leadership level. You have to have another kind of apparatus for people to be able to report and, and to be separate from this sort of leadership level kind of things, which their first you know, instinct is to triage and to protect, right? Rather than to help the victim. And that is really important. I think secondarily, you gotta stop moving people around. I mean, this is the this was part of what happened with the Catholic Church, and I've been very critical of the Catholic Church with this. You know, there's a way in which people get moved around. They're allowed to move from one place to another to another and not be held accountable for the thing that they did someplace else. The third thing is that you have to be able to really listen and to understand that abuse comes in many forms. You have people who, you know, who are doing the kinds of things that, you know, don't rise to the level of full-blown sexual abuse, but they're trying to get people to this place that they can abuse them, right? I think the other thing that we need to actually really talk about is that this is not just male-female. You know, it's same sex. And once we start to talk about that, then that opens up a whole nother level. I, I kind of wonder, you know, especially for the Southern Baptists, we know this about the Catholic Church, but I wonder this about the Southern Baptists, how many more people would have come out if they had not had the shame of realizing that it was, you know, a, a male that messed with a young boy or a woman that messed with a young girl, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that people really hate to talk about. They hate to talk about sexual abuse, you know, that's, you know, mixed gender. But boy, do they really hate to talk about it when it's happened, when it's same-sex persons. It's it's not just that, but it's often used as a tool to continue to discriminate against the LGBTQ community. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. When we last had you on the podcast, we discussed uh, your, your recent book, White Evangelical Racism. You invited readers through... Um, the review of historical trajectory of this moment in which the vast majority of white evangelical Americans support a political engine fueled by hatred and power and racism. In the last few years, whiteness, and more specifically white evangelicalness, maybe that's a word, mm-hmm. has been highlighted and examined and condemned by, by so many. Knowing that this has been covered so much, where, where do you think we are in this conversation now? A really bad place. I mean, and and I think this because I think the next the next move, because of all the things that are happening, you know, whether we're talking about legalities and everything else, is authoritarianism. And it is very clear that there is something within evangelicalism that is not um, is not afraid of authoritarianism. Let me put it like that. And it's not afraid of the fact that you know they could follow after somebody like Donald Trump because it wasn't that Donald Trump was a good person. It was because th- he gave them what they wanted. And this is what I said on Twitter when, this, when the decision came down. It's like, Donald Trump actually delivered. 
where you know the evangelical president George George W. Bush didn't, right? And so for evangelicals, this is like, well, maybe this is the way to go. And so what I'm most fearful of for not just everyone else, but for evangelicals in particular, is this movement into a hardness that they cannot come back from. They are going to be the pariahs from now on. And, and they kind of are. And this is, I think, the hardest thing is that while this is a, a big victory and there may be others to come, I think what evangelicals will have to realize is that while they felt like they've been persecuted before, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> because now it's going to be real persecution and real dislike based on the fact that they have uh, you know, put their will and their religion over and against everything else that anybody else believes in. And so I, this is what I ask at the end of my book. It's like, what happens when you get everything you want? I don't think it puts them into a place that is going to be a good place. I, I really don't. I think that there's going to be a lot of people moving out of, the, out of this particular kind of um, appellation, religious appellation about themselves, first of all. I think secondarily, they look like the people who don't want to learn about slavery and they don't want to, you know, they don't want women to be anywhere. They look authoritarian and you know while people have said oh you're like the Taliban or whatever no, it's not like the Taliban it's something actually really different it's actually something that is redefining the way people are seeing Christianity mm. and so the harm that is done by all of this I think is going to be an important part about how Christianity gets viewed in the next 50 to 100 years yeah we'll go there for our, our last question here in a second but I mean you're you're right in the in so many ways but in the sense of this whole thing plays into the narrative of persecution that has always been a part of yes. the white evangelical movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just look at the recent Supreme Court decision around the high school football coach, mm -hmm. you know, praying. Yes. It, it's all around this narrative of, of persecution and removing one's uh, religious rights, which had nothing to do with that conversation, nothing to do with that case. Um, and so, you know, and all of us do in all areas of our life when we're, we feel persecuted for lack of better terms mm -hmm. we, we just enter into an echo chamber of just hearing the things that we want to hear and I, I i'm with you i think there's in a sense that a lot of people it's going to be that circle in the wagons type type mentality mm -hmm. or entrenching themselves and things but let's let's talk about this out of a sense of abundance you are a person of faith and out of this um out of this you know uh, diagnosis or highlighting or uh, cover, uh, uncovering of all this uh, stuff within the white evangelical movement. There's a sense of people awakening to the reality of the faith that maybe they were, you know, intoxicated to believe or, mm -hmm. um, you know, raised to believe that are leaving that. So what gives you hope for the future of the church when it comes to people coming out of this movement and finding an, a new way of being Christian? I hope a couple of things. One, I hope they become more mindful of the, the basic tenets of the gospel. I mean, for me, Luke chapter 4 is the, is the chapter, right? You come to free the brokenhearted. You bind up their wounds. You, you feed people. You, you, you know, visit folks in prison. You do the stuff that you're supposed to be doing, right? Do the things that Jesus did, right? Maybe in that sense I could call myself a red-letter Christian. I pay attention to what Jesus said more than I do about what a denomination might say or anything else, right? Because I think that's, that's where we should be. And so this really inherent meanness about, you know, the stranger or what we want, want to call now the immigrant, right? The, the ways in which we vilify people just because they want to know their history and say that, you know, it's CRT and it's stupidity. That's just stupid, right? 
instead of buying into all of these kinds of political things, that people would begin to be more human, that they would begin to see that we are living in really, really tough times. You can take away all of the stuff. We have a pandemic that we're still going through that you know maybe or maybe not people understand that COVID has killed probably over a million people and my guess would probably be a million five to closer to two million in America because you know we've had leaders who haven't wanted to count that right. We have people who are in tremendous poverty right now who don't get what they need because they don't have jobs or they don't have the, the resources to feed their kids. We're having to bring in baby formula from other countries because our systems are broken. We have not taken care of the social contract. And I think Christianity can be part of that social contract in this country, that it doesn't just have to be punitive, which is what I see from a lot from evangelicals, but that the people who are leaving will realize that there is something more to the gospel than just making sure that everybody does what we want them to do and saying no to people. And, and that, I think, is much more important. There's, there seems to be no compassion you know, for the people who say they love God the most. And what I want to see is some compassion. Our guest is Dr. Anthea Butler. You can stay connected by visiting her website, AntheaButler.com. Uh, Dr. Butler, is always humbling to talk with you. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for your willingness to uh, trouble us, to sear our soul, and to call us to change. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate it. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Have you ever wanted to study the life and teachings of Baptist ministers whose work in civil and human rights changed the world? Have you ever wanted to read and watch other speeches given by Dr. King? Are you concerned of the way King's life, teachings, and legacy are used by contemporary political and religious leaders? Are you a local pastor or church leader and want to take an evening course at a seminary? Apply today to audit the life and theology of Martin Luther King Jr. at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, taught by Dr. Lewis Brogdon. Visit bsk.edu backslash mlk to learn more. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.